Just before we get underway, uh, last episode I mentioned that I had a COVID-19 test coming up. Don't worry about that. All came back negative. There are many things wrong with me, but COVID-19 is not one of them. Yet. The following episode of the 9pm edict may contain strong language, geopolitics, unexpected disco, and other worrying things. Friday the 3rd of September 2021. Officially it's spring, but this is the final episode of the late winter series, slightly later than the original schedule. So let's stay wintry, stay icy and go Arctic and especially Antarctic with Dr Elizabeth Buchanan. Now she's a lecturer in strategic studies at Deakin University, an expert on polar geopolitics and she even teaches at the Australian War College in Canberra. We'll hear about operating in the grey zone, about krill, and about Australia's 20-year strategy for the Antarctic. I mean, that's, you know, a 30-page document and half of which are pictures of penguins. She explains why we need something better. Brisbane Olympic bid is, you know, outfunds the entire Australian Antarctic Division operating costs, you know, eight to one. And I get schooled on the important bits of Antarctic history. You've missed, you know, the secret Hitler bunker. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm Polar Political Peregrination with Dr Liz Buchanan. Dr Elizabeth Buchanan, Liz, welcome to the pod. I am so looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Hey, thank you for spotlighting Antarctica. Look, my pleasure. And I, I wanted to say... That, for me, Australia's attitude to Antarctica uh, is kind of summed up in Series 2, Episode 6 of The Hollow Men. And The Hollow Men's from 2008, Working Dog Productions, who did Utopia, but I think Hollow Men is way better than Utopia, although it's a bit kind of inside Canberra. Here's here's a scene where the Central Policy Unit, which is really the, the Prime Minister's spin doctors, uh, realises that there's nothing scheduled for the Prime Minister to do in January, so they start thinking, nothing until Australia Day, what can he do? Do you know what I love? A surprise, like when you don't expect him to be where he is. I mean, like a surprise visit. Well, like any surprise, like Afghanistan or East Timor. I think the flak jacket Hercules look has kind of been done. Maybe. Yeah. Where else do we have a lot of Aussies? Balinese prisons. Like officially stationed. Well, hang on. Just wait a minute. He runs out of the office and he comes you back with a, a globe I've got of got the it. world. A surprise trip to? Taiwan. What? Made in Taiwan. No, Antarctica. It's Australian territory. Is it? Has no one here studied Australian history? No, and that's geography, by the way. We've got bases there. The PM could pay a surprise visit. Yeah, but why is he going there? Why does anyone go to Antarctica? Good question. Actually, would he be the first Australian PM to visit Antarctica? This is interesting. Well, Harold Holt might have floated past. How are my jokes going to work if no one understands Australian history? It's horrific because it's just so on brand. It's so on point. Um, I think I agree with you. The Hollow Man series is amazing. Putting that aside, I know a tiny bit about Australian history, but here's everything I don't know about Antarctica, okay? Scott of the Antarctic, Robert Falcon Scott, although when I looked up his name, I realised that 
rolled Amundsen, the Norwegian got to the South Pole first. Oh, the Russians, the Russians would fight you on that one. Oh, so they would. Exactly. So yeah. there's that. Then there's Lawrence Continue. Oates. I am just going outside and I may be some time. Uh, there's Mawson's Hut. There's the hole in the ozone layer. Yes, I'm skipping ahead a bit. And then the other day mm-hmm. we airdropped, the Air Force airdropped some supplies. And I must say as an aside, that that equipment for just hurling things out of a plane at high speed, I've got some people I'd like to use that on, but that's another whole thing. We don't really know much about Antarctica in Australia, do we? No, I mean, you've missed, you know, the secret Hitler bunker. Uh-huh. Um, and you've also, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a few other kind of historical points of reference that are fun to unpack. And you've missed, I guess, the ongoing Google Earth search for alien um, crash landing sites in Antarctica. I thought that all connected with Hitler, doesn't it? I mean, it's the secret Nazi underground (laughs) UFO base. That's where he escaped to. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is, it's, it's going back to this, the Hollow Man episode, right? It it is so on point Mm. for today. And I absolutely think, you know, our intelligence services were spooked themselves at the fact of how on point you know, those conversations were and how we conceptualise um, the Antarctic issue within the halls of government, right? Um, I don't think we've really thought about Antarctica as a national kind of strategic interest since the 80s. And that's, you know, the Dib Defence Report in which we spoke about our external territories and our sovereign claim and, you know, shoring, shoring up those national interests. But today it's really just kind of being set aside um, and we tinker around the edges with, you know, science and environmental uh, leadership. Um, there's a number of tourist companies, I think, that are really kind of trying to push into that space as well, flying the flag for Australia. But we don't think about it in security senses. Okay, well, let's start with a map. For those of you listening at home, you pause the podcast now. Get yourself a map. If you want a good one, link number four on the website because it shows all of the claims. When you've got that, press play again. Welcome back. So now we've got a big blobby shape in front of us. We know it's covered in snow. Fifth largest continent, twice the size of Australia. And on the map, it's divided radially into sectors for, what have we got? We've got Argentina, Australia, Chile, France for some reason, New Zealand, and Norway, and the United Kingdom, although the United Kingdom's bit is quite small. How how did we get to that arrangement, this sort of divvy up? Because to me, it feels a bit like how at the the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the, the Allies, the European powers just divided up the Middle East, or they did the same in Africa at the end of the colonial, or during the colonial eras. Yeah, absolutely. So that's its own kind of subset of research, you know, who got who, who got who got what, sorry, when it came to divvying up the Antarctic. So first of all, yes, everyone open up a map, great work. I always kind of ask people to flip the world on its head. So put 
Antarctica, you know, at the top of at the top of your conception of of the globe. Sorry, you know, flat earthers, um, you might want to exit <laughs> from the discussion here. In, in one but of I your mean, UFOs, a, yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, but have a look there at the kind of strategic geopolitical role that Antarctica, just as a continent. Has. Okay, well, I'll link to a few more maps like that. Let's call them Map 5 onwards. So we've got reach into all of the major oceans here, Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and the Atlantic Ocean. Um, not many choke points. We've got all of those kind of all to our north through through Indonesia and Southeast Asia. So kind of unfettered access here to the, the global seas and, you know, that old the old saying, you know, who, who owns the seas controls the world, right? Mm-hmm. And that's 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 true of this situation. Um, how we got to the current arrangement. So uh, I like to say it's a relic, the treaty system that kind of governs and, and, and allows great power competition um, and states to operate on Antarctica, right? The functionality comes from the Antarctic Treaty System, which essentially was a, well, is a Cold War relic. Mm. So it was negotiated at the heights of the Cold War. You've got red team, blue team, you've got the Soviet Union and the Americans, and each are worried that, you know, given the strategic role that Antarctica has and and affords any of the competitors you've got, um, it would be militarised, it would be, you know, annexed by, by by the Soviets or the Americans, you know, Wherever you were standing in terms of your ideological footing, you know, you were worried either other other way. Um, So, yeah, they were worried about it becoming a a new front in the Cold War. Um, Obviously, that brings in the Australian threat here. There was a legitimate worry that we were going to have Soviet submarines. And this is all the archival work I've kind of nerded out on in the last kind of decade. But we were really worried about Soviet submarine bases popping up on our southern frontier. Well, we were certainly worried about Soviet submarines because being originally myself from South Australia, we were brought up on on the history of the Woomera missile test range and things. So there was Soviet intelligence activity because they wanted to listen in on the telemetry of the development of the British nuclear weapons capabilities and the missiles and all of that. Right, right. And via the ANSYS Treaty, right, via our alliance with the US, that is always going to make us an interesting, you know, target Mm. for competitors. Um, When, you know, we don't stand alone just based on the kind of basing and and the satellite, um, the role, I guess it's best to say, the role that our country plays in giving Indo-PATCOM, so US um, Indo-Pacific forces, for those of you inside role. the bubble. Yeah, Indo-PATCOM, nerding out in bubble. Okay, <laughs> so we've got the treaty system that was basically negotiated. You had your seven, so hopefully you've got a map there with some divvied up yes, claims. seven of them. So we've basically got seven claims. Perfect. Um Worth noting that the British claim is so teeny tiny mm-hmm. because we were lucky enough, thanks to our Queen Liz, to be handed the Australian Antarctic Territory in the 30s. So basically they said, it's yours, you administer it, you look after it. Um, now <laughs> there is, if we want to get into the sort of nerdy legal realms, there is an argument to say, well, can we rightfully claim 
sovereignty over something that was gifted, territory that was gifted. And that's and that's part of another set of discussions that are kind of in the Pandora's box of what happens if we get to a post-treaty world. Wow. And in Australia's case, that that big sector on on the map I've pointed people to, uh, it's it's the ori- – well, hang on, which – oh, now I'm confused. Before I say that, it's the big bit, isn't it? We've got the largest bit. We've got 42%. It's spread over two sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are literally sandwiched in between France. So we sa- we sandwich in France. We actually share a border, right, right? <laughs> with the French. Well, we sort of do out in the Pacific too. <laughs> we in sort a way, of do but, exactly, yes. exactly. So you've got these seven claims that basically um, claimants got together, and with the US and then it was the Soviet Union um, negotiated an agreement to basically shelf the discussion of sovereignty and who owns what. So a lot of the misconception with the Antarctic Treaty System tends to stem from the stem from the idea that these claims are acknowledged and they're kind of frozen in place. And, you know, Australia, we're guilty of that. We keep, you know, printing maps that have Australian claim, you know, planted there. Um, well, that's in the grand history of maps, really, isn't exactly. it? We just put our name on yeah, this bit. Yeah, but we need to really acknowledge the point that these claims, there's no kind of blanket agreement that they um, have any standing. So essentially, they're beautiful lines, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they're nice to have, but they really don't mean anything in reality. And that's the hard. That's the hard truth of it, right? Now, the US and the Soviet Union at the time, now Russia, um, they didn't actually state claims. But what they have is they've protected their right to stake a claim to any or all of Antarctica at a later stage. So that kind of open-ended possibility is a win for them. Mm. But it's also a win for the claimant states because their existing um, territorial bid isn't threatened. It's not going to be diminished. It's not going to be taken off the table um, while the treaty's in force. So the treaty is basically a handshake agreement to put the question of who owns what to the side and get on with international collaboration in scientific research, mm-hmm. um, environmental protection. So it's almost, you know, kind of a global commons or a world park situation. Um Except there's nothing really to enforce that. Right. There's no enforcement mechanism. So, again, we talk about these beautiful lines um, on the pie graph of Antarctica. What do they actually mean? And a lot of my research kind of looks at, well, why aren't we asking these questions? Why do we assume in our most recent, you know, defence update in our foreign policy white papers here out of Canberra that the Antarctic Treaty System, quote, unquote, um, has no viable kind of military threat posed um, to the Antarctic or to the Australian Antarctic Territory that would require considerable force or response in the near future. And I guess, you know, my point is the way the Antarctic Treaty has been crafted, it talks about demilitarisation, but it doesn't really define what is military and what is not mm. military. There's also so much sort of grey zone to play in. So as you noted before with our most recent Australian um, Air Force supply drop, most states actually use their military 
to support Antarctic missions, and that's permissible. So the Chinese have, you know, PLA officers supporting scientific research, whether that's because they have the tools, they have the knowledge base, or they have the bandwidth to do it. So long as you stamp science, research, um, environmental protection on any of these activities that the 54 states who are party to the treaty um, are conducting on Antarctica, there's nothing to say it's, you know, it's it's towards the competitive, conflictual um, end of the spectrum or that it's eroding the treaty. So there's so much, you know, grey zone to operate in. Um, and I guess my, my research really looks at Australia, either we either need to accept that this is happening, so the Treaty Foundation with the development of technology, with the change in great power competition, you know, the rise of China, um, with resource insecurity, fisheries, um, precious minerals, oil and gas, and fresh water, 70% of the world's fresh water is, is locked up in Antarctica. You know, this competition... Um, places at places the continent square like it's it's in the crosshairs and we keep assuming we collectively Australian policymakers assume that competition is shelved because the treaty system continues to tick over um, and I, I I argue that that is it's you know I want to bang my head against the wall whenever I hear <laughs> discussions that there's no real threat um, because we're not looking in the grey zone. There's so much that I can take from that and then jump out in a million directions. Let's talk about that those resources a bit more because I mean I yeah we've heard about fishing and um, in fact uh, there was a thing back in I think it must be in the 80s or early 90s where Australia did capture one of the big ships fishing vessels illegally fishing in um, Antarctic waters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then in uh, the 80s again, I think, or it might have been the 70s, Dick Smith had an April Fool's joke of towing an iceberg into Sydney Harbour um, for fresh water. But you just said fresh water could be so an actual thing. That's thing. a serious thing. No, no, thing. no, no, no. Yes, yes. So a lot of the states that are kind of further further geopolitical geographically away from the Antarctic. Iran is a really interesting case study in this. So they have Iran and Turkey actually are two are two states that are really sort of projecting their Antarctic in interests. And I, I read this really interesting paper um, and it was basically an argument from an Iranian scientist within the Department of Transport, like riddle me that, who was looking at the feasibility studies for towing icebergs to provide fresh water so i what, know through that the it was straits of hormuz which is sort of <laughs> what? that's crowded enough as it yeah, is no 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 <laughs> through our archives as well the australians um in the 60s and 70s were also really interested in the idea of harvesting icebergs <laughs> towing them to to mainland australia um, it was a. It came down to well, we don't have the technology yet, but that will kind of come mm -hmm. in the future. Um, so you know, watch this space. Krill fisheries are the key thing here, uh, and that's you know the building block of the global food chain. That's what China's interested in. China is spending so much time at the moment developing. You know, it's got an indigenous icebreaker building capability, but it's also developing these massive fishing. Um, I want to say flotillas, which is probably the correct term, 
to use. Um, and the point is, you know, um, with the grey zone warfare point, there's one on fisheries. It's a really good kind of case study of that. And that's the Russian fishing vessel Palmer late last year. Um, the New Zealanders called called out the Russians for it. But basically what they were doing was they were spoofing the AIS. Which so is they were the spoofing um, a, beacon system that you use to track. Yeah, yeah, track. for your location beacon. So basically they were able to ping from a region that's not in a protected fisheries region, um, but an aerial overflight of the region in which they had suspected and they had been sighted um, fishing illegally in confirmed that this vessel was, you know, hundreds of kilometres away from the location that it was pinging out. So, I mean, there's a clear kind of, um, I'd say, you know, there's a clear, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I want to be politically correct on this one. You're colouring outside the lines (laughs) there a little bit, Mosco. But coming back to your point, what was the enforcement mechanism? In the end, all that happened was they were, you know, publicly kind of gaslit for for doing a naughty thing, but there was no follow through because there's no capacity for the treaty system to have any kind of um, anything more than a, a slap on the hand, a slap on a slap on the wrist. Interesting. So you know mm. that doesn't curtail various states um, from conducting that kind of work if it's in their national interest. Um, Resource-wise as well, if we think about Antarctica landmass once kind of connecting to the Western Australia part of um, our country, that's where the kind of basis for the argument that it's full of oil and gas, so hydrocarbons, um, comes from. And do we know that for sure or we're just broadly looking? Because in theory we're not meant to have done – Resource exploration. Oh, no, no absolutely. We can oh, okay. because it's science. Oh, it's science. See? <laughs> so it's permissible. Oh. It's research. And actually there's this there's this really funny um, problem that's, uh, that's really kind of emerged in the last, I'd say, kind of five years. People are starting to look at China, right? And I've talked about China you know, five times already. Chinese interests in Antarctica, resource-wise, are super interesting to follow. So it's been – their doctrine and their strategy has been kind of translated incorrectly. And this is something a colleague of mine, Anne-Marie Brady, shout out to her in New Zealand, has really kind of tried to wave the flag on. But we have translated their interest in hydrocarbons, so oil and gas, as um, exploration of Antarctic resources. Right. But her correct translation is exploitation. Ah. So there's a key key kind of difference there. Um, Russia, China, US have all and are all still very active in what we call hydrographic mapping. So that's looking at resources in the Southern Ocean, in the offshore Antarctic. Um, Absolutely permissible because it's for scientific research. But what that means is these states are all mapping the regions in which the main deposits are for future use. Point to make clear is states like Russia and China, different political systems, and, you know, we can do a cost-benefit analysis Mm. of 
democracy versus non-democracy and another podcast. But when it comes to strategic planning, they have yeah. a completely different outlook. Yeah. So they're looking at 50 to 60 to 100 years time. There's no race per se in the next 10 years for them to exploit these resources, um, to bring them online. Hell, some of the technology isn't even, you know, properly tested enough for deep sea sort of drilling through the ice, right? It's not commercially viable. Whereas Australia, um, we don't do, I'd say, you know, at the moment, we don't even do two years in terms of foreign policy forecasting. Well, we just have to look at how uh, we've handled things like, say, (laughs) A vaccine rollout during a pandemic, which people had been saying for years something like this would happen. Uh, the Absolutely. news as we record this today is they've decided to have a uh, plan for rolling out vaccines in Indigenous communities, which is pretty but this is yeah, a, this is good. this is just so commonplace. It's always yeah. on the back foot. It's responsive. My research kind of shows that we cannot be responsive when it comes to the Antarctic. Mm. We've got a history of being at the centre of governing the continent, of being you know that environmental and the research kind of scientific leader. But over decades, we've stopped funding the program properly, and it's kind of laughable to have that massive 42% claim with no way to really ensure it should it ever come under threat. I think, you know, and breaking breaking the silence, the cone of silence here for defence communities, um, all these views are my own, obviously, um, <laughs> but we've only got, you know, 300 or so extreme weather cold suits. Well, we've got three 300 staff people in the Australian uh, Antarctic Division. I just looked it up. That's our oh, total okay. well, civilians. They, they, get, they each get a cold suit. They each get a, a special forces cold suit. You know, <laughs> traditionally we've had experience in operating in these regions, right? We've often sent people up to Norway in our special forces for training. Um, we have quite a bit happening up in Alaska as well. So we've got the capability, but I mean, the institutional knowledge, just there's no follow through. I don't I don't know what it looks like in a decade's time. Well, on that, hold on. I, I yeah. did see on the Defence Department of Defence website, there's a thing mm. called Operation Southern Discovery. Yes. Which So here's a tidbit for you. That uh, used to be um, an, in, an international mission. Uh, and with the reshuffling over the last 12 months, that's now under the domestic mission banner. If you have a look at the website ordering. So it's a very kind of subtle movement mm. there, which I was very pleased to see. Um, so that's basically what we saw a couple of weeks ago, which was the supply drop. That is the, I think the official line is the the Department of Defense's support role in a whole of government effort um, to ensuring our Antarctic interest. Which brings me back to another point. You know, ask the average Australian about Antarctica, and they go, "Well, it's cold." Mm-hmm. Some people think there's polar bears there. There's not. There's mm-hmm. penguins. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's about it. So that national identity piece is really missing, I think, from this discussion. China and Russia, it's at the heart of their kind of global footprint. They are global polar powers, um, you know, and they're not going to go silently. And even uh, though neither China nor Russia have one of those little radial bits cut out as a claim, right. they both right. have bases there, right? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Um, So the majority of them are actually, for both Russia and China, are actually in the Australian Antarctic Territory. Mm -hmm. And again, this is completely permissible because they are largely imaginary lines. So the concept 
of the Australian Antarctic Territory is kind of an inward point of interest for Australia. But I think the problem is we assume that everybody else kind of recognises and agrees by those kind of parameters. Well, they don't. Um, but that's not to say the Antarctic Treaty system is about to crumble and, you know, fall apart. It's actually in China and Russia and Australia. Well, it's in everyone's interest that it keeps ticking over because it's just so malleable. It's so easy to take advantage of. Why would you try and negotiate something else, you know? We sure as hell wouldn't be able to negotiate anything close to a 40% claim. Um, and I just don't think anyone wants to do that kind of intellectual, legal, diplomatic heavy lifting. Um, and we shouldn't, you know, rely on Washington, you, our great yeah. our great ally. They don't even recognise our claim. And they've set up, you know, set up the flag at the geographical South Pole, mm. which is, you know, a, a, a flagging statement in itself, is it not? You know, oh. 1,200 to 1,500 personnel at that base. What are they doing? Wow. Oh, well, they're, <laughs> yes. they're doing science, obviously. Exactly. <laughs> um, large, you know, I think it's Lados now is running their main contract, running their base. So, I mean, you've got huge, huge, big defence industry um, heavy hitters facilitating an Antarctic program for the US government. Let's get into aliens, you know. <laughs> That's right. It's Area 52 down Exactly, there. Yeah. right. <sighs> Meanwhile, uh, Australia, I did a search just before we started mm -hmm. recording. I, I did a new search, Scott Morrison, Antarctica, anything okay. in the last year. And apart from, like, uh, news compilations, which, you know, might have had Morrison mentioned in one paragraph, but then an Antarctic blast of weather in another, I could find really one story and that's when an officer on the Aurora Australis, a ship... Which caught fire. That's true. We might come <laughs> back to this ship in a minute. Mm -hmm. But an officer had posted on social media a photograph with a banner on... Well, they'd put a banner up on the ship criticising Scott Morrison's climate policy and mm -hmm. someone complained mm -hmm. uh, to P&O, who operate the ship, they're the contractor who runs the ship, uh, and they had to take down that social media post. So the only specific thing I could find linking Scott Morrison to Antarctica, apart from recent climate stuff, is complaining about a social media post. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would assume there is a map somewhere in the PMO of Antarctica. <laughs> Um, but you know what? There's no vote. Oh, technically, technically there are voters <laughs> um, there. I think they can now electronically vote in elections. I think that was stipulated last last time around. Um, I, I, yeah, I thought but, they'd flown one down when they could. But yes, it was hard. It was really hard to do that within the timeframes of an election being announced. Yeah, and, I think. And it's like, just, when is the next supply trip? Oh, 100%. And I think it's just you know out of sight, out of mind for everybody. And that kind of that that permeates from obviously the very top to, you know, my parents, if you want to talk to them about what research I'm doing or what I'm kind of frolicking about in. So we don't really understand it, but I think the issue is we haven't had it threatened overtly, right? So we've mm -hmm. got no, we have had no real um, basis to have that reactive kind of knee-jerk reaction. So in many ways, if you want an Antarctic 
policy. If you want a really serious Antarctic strategy out of Australia, we need we need someone to invade. We need someone to, you know, plant a flag um, in the Australian Antarctic Territory and kick us out. I think is where we're headed. So. You know, and that's obviously not an invitation for your dear listeners um, to crowdfund some sort of invasion. (laughs) But um, that's where we're headed. And, I mean, we've got the 20-year Australian Antarctic strategy, which, you know, came out under Turnbull. And, I mean, that's, you know, a 30-page document and half of which are pictures of penguins. Like, legitimately, you you can download that PDF and it's, quite confronting. Um, our 2020 or 2020, yeah, 2020 um, Australian Antarctic Scientific Program as well was an A3 PDF file of, you know, a one a one pager. So I don't think the strategic onus is there because our hand hasn't been forced yet. Um, and I, I really hope that, you know, my research and, and the work that I'm doing on this issue is drawing attention. I'm hoping some flags are going up here in here in Russell, um, in defence about the ways in which our Antarctic strategic interest can be undermined and is being undermined and threatened in that kind of covert beneath the surface manner, in which you know we have to get it on top of that now, or you know the the game's the game's over. It's lost. You can't you can't really come back from that. Um, and so getting on top of it involves obviously more funding. So I think the Brisbane Olympic bid is you know outfunds the entire Australian Antarctic Division operating costs. You know eight to one. Wow. Yeah. Wow. There's just there's just there's nothing there's nothing in it um, in terms of the finances and. We've got this. Oh, here, you know, there will be some Scott Morrison interest, I think, in the um, new icebreak Nuina, which is due to arrive in October. It's you know, one point nine, one point yeah, one point nine billion dollar asset. Um, it's, I can see you know, the photos of him already on the, the bridge yeah, with his yeah. cheesy thumbs <laughs> up. Oh well, it doesn't fit under the bridge um, in Tasmania to refuel. They didn't oh, measure right. that. So there's a number of things that are going on here, um, but I think they blame that on you know the outsourcing from Serco Defence, who's going oh, to be. Oh, Serco is involved. Yes, they they have that. They've looked after that um, asset procurement. Um, look, this just, is yeah. It, this is this is also I think wonderful. I everybody. I, look, yeah. I uh, yes. Rightly and rightly so. Look, I, I want to move on to uh, some okay. other topics in a moment, but but before we do, here's here's a, another grab from that uh, episode of the Hollow Men. This is when uh, the uh, Central Policy Unit people actually get on the phone with the Australian Antarctic Division staff about what they might need the Prime Minister to bring down as a gift. Yeah, I must say we're all very excited that the Prime Minister is so personally interested in our work. Oh, he's always had an interest in the Arctic. Uh, Antarctic. Antarctic, sorry. Sorry, where does Santa Claus come from? Uh, That's the North Pole. Yep. Arctic. Arctic, of course it is. Yeah, just grab the the couch there. Mm -hmm. Can you let Mel know that? Because I think we've got Santa Claus coming in via Hobart and that won't make sense. So you asked me to come up with a list of some equipment? That's right. Yep. Cool. Our folks at Davis Base could do with a new glycol tank. As in... The refrigeration system. What, you need something in Antarctica to help keep things cold? No, no, more of an industrial type. What else? 
have you got? Uh, electrical generators, mm -hmm. uh, ventilation system parts, and there's even talk of installing a new VHF repeater. Nothing sort of life-saving or emergency? Yeah, no, we don't really deal with life-saving work you? down no. there. What, what do you do sort of down uh, there? Well, silence, mainly. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got people studying moss and mm -hmm. cruel distribution. Anything interesting, though? We think that's pretty interesting. Sure. Oh, sure, I didn't mean yeah, it like that. No, I no, meant no. sort of more... Just more relevant. For the layman. You know, the PM is, is looking to help achieve something down there. How about uh, calling on Japan to cease whaling? You could also cut funding to the... Understood. Thank you. But how about we do a little ring around? Mm. You know, ring uh, Casey... Davis. Davis and uh, Dawson's Creek. Mawson. Mawson's Creek, sorry. And uh, just come up with a list of other things that we might... You know, what's top of the list, I guess? Well, the folks at Casey could really use a new ablution system. Is that more the kind of thing you had in mind? Ablutions? A toilet. Thank you very much, Brian. You're right to see yourself yep, out, are you? Yeah, no, no you know way around. Thanks, Brian. Thanks Thank again. You. We'll be in touch. A dunny. Yeah. He wants the Prime Minister of Australia to fly all the way down to Antarctica to personally deliver a dunny? Well, it's not just a dunny, it's a diesel-fueled incinerator toilet system. Oh, good. So it's a dunny that needs an emissions trading permit. Well, it's not going to happen. What about Lawson's hut? Mawson's. Mawson's hut. What about Mawson's hut? Turns out it's already been restored. But we can add to it a hell of a bunk room or a... It's not domestic blitz. We need something, Murph. Can't he just visit? What for? Actually, uh, a couple of things quickly uh, before I do the housekeeping. Illegal fishing. Uh, just before I, um, I alluded to an event in the past where Australia uh, captured some ships that were illegally fishing in its uh, exclusive economic zone in the Southern Ocean, the one I was thinking of was called Operation Dirk, D-I-R-K, 1997, uh, when the Navy deployed HMAS Anzac, along with, which is a frigate, uh, along with the tanker HMAS Westralia, to intercept some of these ships. And uh, the mission was fairly straightforward, board these ships, uh, prove that they were fishing illegally, uh, and gather evidence so that it can be prosecuted in... Uh, in the international court. Well, uh, they did just that. Uh, a ship called the Salvora was uh, intercepted and uh, found to be 174 nautical miles inside the Australian fishery zone with 20 boxes of Patagonian toothfish uh, being the catch of the day and 43 boxes of uh, of the toothfish which had been recently tailed and headed and gutted and, and all of that. I know someone who was involved in the planning of this operation and what I love is that to, to prove that this ship and this illegally caught fish and all the things were there, uh, they boarded the ship, put a thermometer into the fish, which was only, you know, partially freezing, and held up uh, a GPS receiver to mark the position and had officers in shot of the, the Navy holding these objects and the fish all within shot took a Polaroid photograph of it, which they all then signed as witnesses to say this is when that's taken and they would have had the the accurate time from the GPS receiver and so on. And and so 
the argument in court was simply, look, this ship is so far inside Australia's uh, fishery zone and this fish isn't frozen yet, it can't possibly have been caught somewhere else and this ship is innocently just trucking through. And in any event, they didn't have the relevant permit for innocently passing through the fishery zone. So that ship was uh, the Salvora, uh, flagged in Belize because, of course, it was. And another ship uh, the next day uh, was done, uh, arrested, I should say, the Elysee Glacial, uh, a Panamanian uh, flagged ship, but... uh, um, owned by Norway. I've also linked to kind of a thing that which lists some of these other ships caught in the late 90s, early 2000s. One that fascinates me, uh, two Russian ships, the Lena and the Volga, were intercepted on the 5th and... Uh, sorry, the 6th and 7th of February 2002. Uh, they had to let the first one go, sorry, the Volga go, because the, the captain died. Um, he was drinking while in, in in custody. Anyway, ended up drinking industrial alcohol and carking it. Anyway, anyway, on to the, uh, the housekeeping now. I just want to do some quick thank yous uh, to you, the generous uh, listeners who support this podcast. It is thank you to all of you who supported the 9pm Late Winter series. Uh I was going to list you all again today, but I've decided that I'm going to do a bonus episode next week. There you go. That's a reveal. Bonus episode next week. And I'll make an effort to list you all then because I think we can have a bit of fun with that. Um, And if you would like to join people in supporting this podcast, it's pretty easy. Just go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip, the 9pmedic.com slash tip. And there's also a link there to subscribe, which is basically just to have a regular payment coming in. And if you do that, and it's the right amount, you uh, can buy yourself a conversation topic to throw in or indeed a trigger word or three or five. And they're a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, in fact, let's let's go back to uh, Liz Buchanan and uh, do a couple. Indeed, we have a uh, a trigger word here from Josh Melman, a uh, longtime supporter of the pod. His trigger word, I, uh, which is meant to be a single word, is as follows. Have you seen that ridiculous TV show, The Head, how inaccurate it is? If the writers had actually been to the Arctic or Antarctic, they'd know it's not dark for six months. Even in winter, you get a few hours of twilight each day. Uh, so, so thanks, Josh Melman, for that Trigger word. Liz, have you seen The Head? I haven't. I have. Um, I think it's part and parcel of being a polar, so Arctic and Antarctic geopolitical nerd. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a binge off that kind of SBS. I think it's SBS. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a Spanish, it's a Spanish production. Yeah, yeah. And the if murder I can mystery say here, in Antarctica. Yes. I do highly recommend it. Winter has fallen on the South Pole. Yeah. The sun will soon disappear for the next six months somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the winter crew, well, when the spring comes, the summer commander arrives and the entire team are either dead or missing. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's the most, it's you know, not an ideal event to occur, which is no. any sort of like 
crime in oh, Antarctica. Yes. The um, young doctor is profoundly shaken and is apparently the sole survivor. This sounds like Forbidden Planet on Ice. Right. I mean, we've had there's a, there's a long history of crime though in real life in Antarctica. Oh, really? You've had, you know, yeah, chess is banned on Russian research stations after the 50s and an 80s. Um, it was a murder in the 50s. A Russian expeditioner killed his fellow expeditioner over a game of chess. Oh, yeah. I mean, they do take their chess very seriously. Yeah, but yeah, 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 absolutely. yeah. Wow. Absolutely. But, I mean, yes, there's that misperception that there is complete darkness and complete lightness at all times of the year, um, either in the summer or the winter, on the winter time, it just, you know, I'm I'm not a proper, um, you know, what do you want to say? Science isn't my forte, and I'll be really honest about that. But I have a wonderful husband, engineer, who tried to explain this to me, and it's obviously to do with when the sun, how far the sun comes up on the horizon. So in when we're talking about full winter um, darkness, it it doesn't rise above the horizon. So you can still you can still have light. Um, In the same way that it is light before dawn, wherever you are. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I think it is an interesting point to make that you know the psychological components of being posted in Antarctica, much like some folks that are sadly posted up in the Arctic. At different points of the year, um, there's there's you know severe psychological effects on that. You know that's why people are picked quite rigorously for the postings. There's a lot of hoops to jump through, and a lot of the you know the space programs do test out their personnel in terms of how they survive in Antarctica because it, it you know it plays with your circadian rhythm, it plays with all sorts of your hormones. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a melting pot of crazy mm. should you be posted there. Which brings me to my, another point, you know. We talk about polar warfare and the idea of, um, you know, looming conflict in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. But, I mean, in many ways there's this discussion of how, how logistically do you facilitate said war? You know, who wants to mm. fight in the North Pole? <laughs> who operationally wants to fight in Antarctica? Um, you know, it's all, it's all going to be around the grey zone in these edges. The real kind of conflict. I wanted to mention um, uh, another Arctic film or thing. This one's Arctic rather than Antarctic, but I think mm. the Spanish one it is. Ice Station Zebra, as we would say yes. in the thing, or Ice Station Zebra from 1967. It's based on a, a thriller. What it's really about is a spy satellite crashes and and and. They're out there to retrieve the film before the other side gets it. Yeah. Classic Cold War thriller. Based I just on a true to, story. Mm-hmm. It is, it is, mm-hmm. and I'll link to all those things. I must confess that when I was in my very early teens, I had the completely wrong impression of what I was going to, to get because it was set up at like – a family movie night for some local group. It might have been the Boy Scouts. It might have been something else. And you know, in the hall, get together with a sixteen millimeter projector and a copy of the film. And I thought, because you buy ice at a petrol station as well, that maybe an ice station is like a petrol station, but it's where you buy ice. 
right? <laughs> and a movie that came out in 1975 was the movie Car Wash, which was a disco musical about the antics of, I mean, it's kind of a sort of a, Black black exploitation disco film. It's actually really good music, and the theme car wash. It's fantastic disco. So I was expecting this happy antic filled movie set in something called an ice station or whatever that might be, with splashing water. and uh, It wasn't. It's not. It's a deep, dark thriller. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty pretty far from um, <laughs> your expectations. <laughs> and there wasn't even a zebra. <laughs> but, I mean, a lot of those, those films of the era that were kind of obsessed with, you know, the, the spying that was going on and still mm. is going on in the Arctic context um, has really shaped in an ideological sense the idea of polar warfare and, and, and who owns the poles, you know, who claims what. Um, so, I mean, that's not lost on the contemporary understanding of, of what's at stake at either ends of the earth. Um, but, yeah, there's absolutely truth to that film. Um, I encourage anyone to kind of delve into the – CIA archives are now mostly well, heavily redacted, but mostly online <laughs> yes, they, now. They are, but there's um, amazing stuff coming up. There now. is really. If you've got you know a week to do nothing, you know, in a pandemic or something, mm. look into Project Cold Feet. I mean, that. Oh, which one was that? Spectacular. So that is the drop, which is basically what the movie is um, based on. So that is using a. Soviet, and it was an, a vacant Soviet um, ice drifting station. Now, an ice drifting station, they're used at the moment as well. The Chinese are really into them, is essentially, you know, setting up, a t- literally, if you can Google a photo, I do, I do, um, I do recommend you do. Um, it is a setting up a, a, a couple of tents and, and any sort of research facilities on a section of an ice shelf that's basically free moving and you kind of wait weeks sometimes even months for you know your ship to arrive and pick you up and you've got all your research with you packed up in a bag um it's less likely that we see these kind of floating ice floating stations because of the advances we had in satellite technology um again mainly out of china they can map to a couple of meters um Accuracy, which is fantastic, mm-hmm. but yeah. So this is like a ni- project cold feet. It's like a nineteen sixties um, operation, I guess, in which um, they were really testing out their own sort of camera and um, aerial observation technology. The whole concept of Arctic warfare, actually, um, and the Cold War. I want to mention um, the map that I first Mm -hmm. saw that made me understand this was in a big, fat, hardback atlas called the Times Atlas of World History. And its big double-page map explaining the Cold War was one centred on the North Pole. And suddenly it made sense because on one side you had this big curve of the Soviet Union. On the other side there was a curve, was Canada with the US below it, Iceland and then Western Europe. Uh, And, of course the missiles were going to fly over the pole at each other's and in that 
wonderful movie, Doctor Strange Love. Um, <laughs> all of the flying of the bombers is is over these snow clad landscapes, and it all makes sense. So, how much was the Cold War an Arctic war, really? Yeah, absolutely. So that was, um, I guess the the real illustration of East versus West in the Cold mm. War. That was the frontier in which if there was going to be a battle, it was going to happen there. When, looking back on history, no, it was more about, you know, the proxy wars elsewhere mm. um, in which the conflict between the Soviet Union and the US um, kind of, I guess, you'd get, you know, played out, right? And that's where we get the term the Cold War. I mean, we could take it quite literally cold Arctic. I mean, there's something fun (laughs) there, right? (laughs) But, I mean, that was the illustration. The Cold War was a bundle of laughs, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was was your threat perception. But, I mean, this was the region. Basic geography comes comes into this. And I think it's so important we understand history and geography when we're thinking about even contemporary kind of political issues. But you've got the Russian Soviet Union um, strategic strategic nuclear arsenal located up there in Murmansk. So it's where else are they going to put it, right? They're Mm -hmm. largely a landlocked country. Pacific, um, Far East, Pacific frontier is, you know, not at all populated. Um, It's, you know, quite sparse and they've got the Chinese kind of encroaching on their territory there. Um, so government's operating towards the west of the country, so it makes sense to put it there up there in Murmansk. I'd love to go there myself. Uh, my mate Apostrophe Pong was there in 2018, it was, uh, with uh, some friends on a tourist trip, so to Murmansk and the area around there. Uh, so he took some amazing photographs, and uh, I'll, I'll put a link to them on the podcast website. It's just mind-blowing. I mean, that part, that part of the world is really fascinating as well because, you know, it's, well, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, conceptualization mm. of NATO as well, had so much to do about securing the supply lines for Europe from um, North America. And the Arctic is obviously, you know, that kind of major choke point and I guess we call bridge between the two. So it's at the heart of the alliance. Um, and you've just got to look to, you know, Trump's interest in buying Greenland, um, reopening of a number of US bases throughout Iceland and Greenland in recent years. Um, but what I always find so interesting is, and this is part of a research project I actually did when I was posted over um, in Rome at the NATO Defence College. Basically, they said, you're doing a whole lot of work. My PhD was on Russian Arctic strategy. We want to understand why Russian subs keep popping up in the North Atlantic. And kind of perplexed Australian me thought, okay, well, either I've completely missed the problem here or these people have no idea what's going on. And it turns out they really didn't have much idea what was going on. Okay. <laughs> because- can, I, can I just say, because I'm, I'm immediately confused to say, uh, why wouldn't they be popping up in the North Atlantic? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so maybe we all down south understood that. But the point was that NATO as an organisation had, when the Soviet Union collapsed, moved its operational focus from the North Atlantic, spun it around into the Mediterranean. So its naval forces were now doing all sorts of work in the Middle East, in the Mediterranean, 
in the south of the flank, right? But even with the collapse of the Union, Russia knew with its only year-round warm water port, roughly warm water port, being in the north, no matter what was going to come, that was always going to be a strategic asset that they had to safeguard. So there was no funds to modernise Russian military throughout the Arctic for for until at least Putin came into power in the 2000s. And so that's the kind of um, modus operandi we've seen under Putin. You know, the energy rents, the resource money has come in and flowed in and, you know, all sorts of deals have been cut and they've been able to strengthen and modernise the forces in the north. Um, but I guess, I guess the point is, coming back to this Cold War discussion of the role that the Arctic played, is what's going on now in the Arctic is really a remilitarization. It is not the militarization of the Arctic. It was so much more, you know, of a strategic um, military foci in the Cold War than it is today. So I get that, you know, our threat perceptions have spent 20 years looking collectively in the Middle East. But what's occurring now in the Arctic is, you know, really getting back to a normalisation of the levels that we saw in the Cold War. I'm not sure if we'll ever reach the same kind of nuclear strategic levels. But the point is, we've been there before. No conflict arose in the Arctic, (laughs) uh, which is a key point to make. Very bloody close, though. Yeah, yes. But all things considered, we came off rather scot-free. But the point is, if we compare and contrast what's going on in the Antarctic, you know, strategic competition and the potential for conflict is not going to look like it did in the Cold War down there. Um, We shouldn't expect to see submarines based and, you know, militaries projecting out of the Antarctic. Why would they bother? They can do um, as much kind of resource fossicking. They can set up satellite receiving stations for global operations there, all within the bounds of the treaty because it's permissible if you stamp science on it. And I think that is something that our government and our policymakers really do need to start looking at a bit closer. And with that message, I think that's the perfect place to end thank you so much for your time Dr. Oh, you're, you're so welcome so welcome um anyone who is interested in arctic and antarctic security matters you know reach out by all means nerd along uh nerd along uh, look we'll, we'll have to chat further i i have barely touched my notes i knew this was going to be the case but <laughs> <laughs> endlessly fascinating thank you so much Wow, Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan, that I, as I said, I barely touched my notes. I wanted to talk about climate change, how melting the ice is causing the Earth's crust to warp, although from a more strategic sense, the Northwest Passage is opening, creating a trade route potentially along the north coast of Russia. There's resources, uh, much more than what we spoke about. Oh, and we barely touched the Nazi base thing. I bet she's part of the cover-up. Uh, Liz has got a couple of books coming up. This is d- just the range of her uh, interests here uh, by Dr. Liz Buchanan. Uh, from the ANU Press, there is Russian Energy Strategy in Asia. 
and from the Brookings Institution, uh, Russian Arctic Strategy Under Putin. See, she knows about this stuff. That was fabulous, wasn't it? Um, I'll have to get it back, I reckon. What do you think? Well, that's all the edict for now. I hope you've learnt something today. I know I have. Uh, if you liked what you heard, please tell your friends. Please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip and uh, do the needful. Uh, as I said, I will throw in a bonus uh, episode to this series uh, next week. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.